the time will come when, with elation, you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome and say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the desperate notes. Peel your own image from the mirror. Sit. Feast on your life. Hello, and welcome to Words the Burn, the podcast taking a closer look at poetry. This week's poem of radical self-compassion and forgiveness is Love After Love by Derek Walcott. Derek Walcott was a Caribbean poet whose list of accolades could take up this entire episode. To name but a few are the Nobel Prize for Literature and the MacArthur Genius Grant. The distinction of being a Caribbean poet is essential in understanding Walcott's work. He was a man who always wrote passionately about the history of the Caribbean and the challenging aspects of the identity that came with being from it, both for other people and himself. He constantly sought to understand the ways in which his own identity and culture could fit within Western culture without being moulded by it and eventually worn down. To that end, some of his most famous poems are reworkings of Western classics. Arguably his greatest work, Omros, is a retelling of the Iliad from the perspective of Caribbean fishermen. This attitude to working within the Western literary canon as a black man was sometimes criticised by other Afro-Caribbean and African-American authors of his time, with many claiming that he was relying too heavily on a voice that was borrowed from oppression. Others claiming that it was the responsibility of displaced communities to find a new voice and way of poetry. Walcott always viewed this stance as more than a little confusing and to some extent ridiculous. Here he is discussing the notion of avant-garde voice in Afro-Caribbean poetry and why it didn't and couldn't really ever fit. You don't have an avant-garde in the provinces And that's good because in the provinces, what you try to learn is to learn from the masters. You can't bother with the fashions of the city. The colonial says, the provincial says, how can I make this thing good? Because there's no publicity machine, there's no reviews, there's no real fame, a visible form of fame, including money. So the artist who chose to be an artist in the Caribbean had chose to do it um, without any fantasies of making a lot of money. So inevitably, he was really going to be a writer which is an odd thing in a way to say, <clears throat> apparently in a society that didn't have any, any books, any, not necessarily books, was producing its own books. One of the things that was good about that is that um, the writers who left the Caribbean and who went towards London and went to London left in a kind of a pilgrimage idea. The pilgrimage idea was, I'm taking myself and my book to London to see what will happen. They were not born in London saying, well... Maybe I'll get a book published, maybe I won't. I can always do something else. But to make that trip, to decide that you were going there to do that, you know, is a heroic undertaking, equivalent to a kind of reverse middle passage, you know, which is no, not going that way as 
as slaves, or the children of slaves, or as indentured servants, but as artists leaving and going in a certain direction, repeating the very direction from which their ancestors came. Walcott always saw European culture, especially the literary canon, as a way to enrich yourself, and as a pathway to education that was open for everyone. As he stated in the interview, focusing on the canon made him focus on the question, how can I make this good? It is perhaps a clue as to why his own verse was envied by his contemporaries. Matthew Hollis once wrote of him, Like the classics to which he was constantly drawn, he could bring forth truth from such minute detail and remind us vividly and unforgettably why the examined life truly mattered. It is that notion of minute detail and the examined life, as opposed to post-colonial documentation, that brings us to our poem today. Love after love is a delicate and intricate examination of what it means to pick up the pieces of yourself in the wake of a tragedy. Poetry had always been a source of healing and emotional navigation for Walcott, and this poem is a testament to that. In the beginning, the speaker is delivering a message of hope. The first stanza is a reminder that even at an adir, the lowest point of something, there is hope. The time will come when with elation you will greet yourself arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome. That first line is a recognition that though things are not fantastic right now, the time will come when that changes. It's not here yet, but there is hope. The second line chooses its nouns carefully. It's very brief, but it promises a lot. When with elation, your reprieve from misery will be no small thing. It will be a joyous occasion. Following this, there is an interesting duality established. A single person split into two. You will greet yourself, arriving at your own door, in your own mirror, and each will smile at the other's welcome. Walcott writes of this splitting in two like a warm friendship. Not only will you greet yourself, but you'll also find yourself smiling and welcoming this person. What is being described is an old friendship, which is, of course, what any relationship with ourselves is. The simplicity of life and the minutiae of the everyday, one of Walcott's great themes, is on display in full here. The opening of the door and the glimpsing of oneself in the mirror is a daily ritual and occurrence all over the world. That beautiful sense of recognition, both in the mirror and in the welcome, shows how eventually your hardship will pass and you'll come back to yourself. Despite the gently reassuring inevitability of healing hinted at in the first line, it requires one major decision on your part. Compassion. Compassion, by any other name, is simply kindness. In the second stanza, Walcott outlines this need for kindness by invoking one of the greatest symbols of hospitality. Food. And say, sit here, eat. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself, to the stranger who has loved you. The stanza is a gentle invitation to nurture yourself. It's difficult to imagine, given his love of classics, 
that Walcott wasn't aware of the sacred obligation of hospitality in ancient Greek and Roman culture. In Greek myth, especially the works of Homer, hospitality is one of the most important things you can give to another. This was a sacred duty, so important that it was given its own special name, Xenia. In this poem, if you undertake your duty to yourself correctly, another promise is given. You will love again the stranger who was yourself. In this line, there is a beautiful recognition of how trauma and heartbreak can shape us into someone we barely recognize. Food returns to reassure us once more. Give wine, give bread, give back your heart to itself. That gentle, lulling refrain of the verb give is a slow and steady call to action. Compassion, compassion, compassion. The heart being given back to itself is a natural oxymoron, an image that is redundant. How can a heart be given back to itself? And yet, there is a beauty to this loop, a comfort in knowing that this is not a Herculean task, but a simple one. Your heart being given back to itself is a small gesture, as it is never apart from itself. They are one and the same. The final image of this stanza, to the stranger who has loved you, is once again used to reassure the reader. Even if you do not recognize yourself, your love for yourself has never wavered. Perhaps it has been overlooked, but it has never vanished. The stranger you no longer recognize has loved you nonetheless. That notion of unconditional love leads us directly into the next stanza. All your life, whom you ignored for another, who knows you by heart, take down the love letters from the bookshelf. That fraction of a line, all your life, is a reminder that the only person who's always been there for you is yourself. It is a much more welcome version of the famous Orson Welles quote, We're born alone, we live alone, we die alone. In Walcott's imagining, we can never truly be alone. More than that, the stanza recognises that endless self-compassion is a fantasy, that it cannot be relentlessly practised, whom you ignored for another. I've always taken this poem to be written about a romantic kind of love but it could just as easily be substituted with any object of affection. There is a lovely nod to poetry itself in the line, Who knows you by heart? Memorizing things by heart is often associated with poetry. The line after that reinforces the romantic reading. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf. There is a recognition that literature and the written word can bring healing. And yet more recognition, self-love, has always been there, within the person that the speaker is addressing. In the final stanza, Walcott drives his message home with more imagery that is synonymous with romantic love. The photographs, the desperate notes, peel your own image from the mirror. Sit, feast on your life. When we feel broken... It can be hard to imagine a time we didn't feel that way. But these objects, 
full of nostalgia and longing. Photographs of happier times and words of longing serve to shine a light in the difficulty of heartbreak. There have been very happy times, and there will be more. The final two lines of the poem are the reward of this practiced self-compassion. His command to peel your own image from the mirror is a beautiful callback to the simple smile in stanza one. Now, on the other side of misery, you can merge with yourself and be whole again. And then comes one of my favourite lines in all of poetry. Sit. Feast on your life. The verb sit is another invitation to gentleness, another simple callback to the first stanza. The choice of the verb feast is incredibly intentional. Your existence is a banquet full of nourishment. Always was and always will be. The poem on its surface is remarkably simple and only when we stop and examine it do we realise that Derek Walcott was a master of his craft. There is a constant and gentle sense of repetition both in terms of imagery and structure that carry the reader through the poem before they've realised it's done. Occasionally, Walcott does this in a single line. Give, give, give. Other times, it is a similar image, slightly changed, an echo of something that was already written, in your own mirror, from the mirror. Upon Walcott's death, his fellow poet and contemporary Joseph Brodsky wrote, For almost forty years, his throbbing and relentless lines kept arriving in the English language like tidal waves, coagulating into an archipelago of poems without which the map of modern literature would effectively match wallpaper. He gives us more than himself or a word. He gives us a sense of infinity embodied in the language. There is a definite tidal quality to his work, a steady rhythm of waves gently reaching the shore, repeating again and again indefinitely. His style perfectly embodies the message of this poem. Your compassion was always there, and despite the low tide you may feel at times, there will always be new waves waiting to gently greet you at the shore. What did you think of the poem? I'd like to point out, as always, this is my interpretation. If you'd like to talk to me about yours, there are a few ways you can do that. Visit my website, www.wordsthatburnpodcast.com or talk to me on Instagram, Words That Burn Podcast. There are a few links to other socials down in the description below. If you've enjoyed this podcast and gotten something out of it, please consider leaving me a review wherever you listen. Or better yet, if you think you know somebody who would enjoy this episode, send it to them directly. The script for this episode, complete with sources and citations, are available on Substack at the link in the description. Please join me on the next episode, where I'll be looking at the poetry of Molly Toomey. Words That Burn is written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. Thanks for listening once again.